I always talk about purpose and intention when you're building something, because those are the important things, because you will be faced with challenges that you cannot fathom, right? But if your purpose and intention are aligned, mm-hmm. you know, with your partners, with the community that you do business in, with your investors, then you will succeed. You will find a way. Your network is your net worth. Come listen to some of the most successful people I know. Share invaluable knowledge, stories, and advice in real estate, business, and beyond. This is Weiss Advice. Whether you want to take your business or personal life to the next level, look no further. Welcome back to another episode of Weiss Advice. I'm your host, as always, Yona Weiss. I am pleased to be joined today by Mr. B, or Bobbin, whatever you're going to call him, Mr. Patel in the house. You got the, I didn't even notice that before. You got the bumblebee pendant on your shirt there, on your coat. That's pretty cool. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing terrific. I always say I'm living the dream. That's awesome. What is the dream? What are you living? Tell us. What does that mean to you? Yeah. I mean, you know, my family immigrated here in the mid 90s from India. My dad was a teacher and you know, wanted a better life for us, opportunity to get a good education and, you know, lead our purpose. And then I think, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, you know, have a family here. I raised two daughters in Northeast Ohio. You know, we do well. You know, we got our education. So, I guess, you know, we check the box. Right. I think it's for a lot of people, what I've seen, especially immigrants, there's a lot of you know emphasis on getting an education and specifically a higher education. Was that pushed on you as well in terms of, you know, not just a degree, but a graduate degree as well? Yeah, it definitely was. And I think it goes back from the part of India that we're from, we're farmers. And I think I'm 16th generation, according to my uncle. And it comes down to you know, one child took care of the farming, the other children had to get educated. Mm. Otherwise, you know, there wasn't enough to go around. And so my father was the younger of the two sons. And so he became a teacher, got his master's in teaching. My mother also was educated. And, you know, they would always put emphasis on the fact that education will never hurt Mm -hmm. you, right? It gives you options. Right. I would say the same to my children, right? I have two girls and I would say, hey, you know, it doesn't matter what you do in life. I hope you get an education. Right. And we're always continue education. I mean, obviously you can yeah. you can go to school and get degrees, but nowadays you can learn anything anywhere. It's a matter of just having that desire for learning, for knowledge, which I think a lot of people do have. And anyone who's listening to this podcast, clearly, unless you're just listening for entertainment purposes, <laughs> which some people do, and that's great. Keep coming back every week. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review. But seriously... There are so many podcasts out there. You just listen, you learn so much every day, every week. It's nonstop, never ending. Absolutely agree. Education is everywhere. Just find it. Yeah. So for our listeners, give a little context. I mean, you are one of the co-founders of Green Harvest Capital, which is a multifamily investment company in Ohio. Tell us how you got started in real estate. Obviously, you had a degree in business and you were involved in other things before you started this real estate journey. How did you get involved in that? You know, always had an entrepreneurial mindset, kind of driven by my mother primarily, who, you know, brought us to this country, helped us get educated and kind of always instill that can-do attitude in us. And so mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to start early. As a sophomore in college, I was presented an opportunity, I always like to say, like to work for free. And the gentleman thought the price was right, so that he hired me. That's how I got started. I started working for a 27-unit property and I landed a contract. I was able to 
go out and find some revenue that didn't exist for the business. And the gentleman that owned it saw it as a good opportunity to sell me the business because he knew I could support the debt service at the time. And so I bought my first asset on a land contract. I was 19 years old. Wow. Yeah. Very fortunate, right? Also too dumb to know I could fail. And that's a gift. So you know, gave it a college try, I guess, and then was successful and then then built slowly from there. At present, we run a small firm called Green Harvest Capital in Ohio. And Green Harvest Capital is a company that owns and operates workforce housing multifamily apartments. We have around a thousand units in our market. We're vertically integrated. We have our own construction services business and our own management company. That's awesome. So how are you managing as a 19-year-old managing you know, your own property and going to school and continuing that, I mean, was that, yeah. yeah, sure, people have jobs when they're in college. Like I certainly did. I know what that was like, but it was a huge balance, right? And I definitely wasn't managing a property at the time. No, absolutely. Hindsight's always 20-20. I spend enough time in reflection and mindfulness. And, and I say, you know, everybody that I had asked for help helped. I guess so, you know, mm. that's the one thing I wasn't afraid to do was ask for help. And then Everybody from my law professor at the time, who business law professor, who helped me understand what a limited liability company was. And so I could register an LLC. There was an attorney, Mr. Sparks, in Canton, Ohio, who helped me set up an operating agreement, right? You know, and then going down to the local Chase Bank to set up a business account and just being aware enough to know that I don't know much. So asking for help helped a lot. And then, right. you know, showing up every day. Right. My day would start around 7 30 a.m. where I would open my office until 10 a.m. I was there. And then I would go to college from 11 to about, you know, 3 30 ish and then come mm-hmm. back and work till nine and then, you know, wow. do it again. <laughs> That's a handful. It really is. How did that progress? I mean, was it just that one apartment building or as you went along, did you find as you were learning the business, how quickly did you scale that? Yeah, sure. That was 2005. And, you know, my second acquisition was in 2007, something similar where there was an owner operator whose business had greatly suffered due to a theme park closing near them. And I thought I could reposition the asset. It was a hotel. So it was a lot of tourist business. Mm -hmm. And and I thought I could reposition it to more, you know, construction worker contracts. And 07 was the time that I did it. And then, you know, we all know the great recession hit. Right. And that was a tremendous learning experience for me. I comprehended micro macro economic conditions, as I like to call them. You know, never thought Wall Street could affect me on Main Street, and it did. And, you know, I realized that there's a lot more to learn about business. So at that time, I went back to grad school to get a better understanding of how to structure deals better. Right. I was an entrepreneur. Mm. I was, you know, very adept at getting things done, but strategy wasn't my strong suit at that age. And so going back to school helped me get that perspective. I went to a small university called Ashland University in Ohio. And at the time, it was a unique time to go to school. There were a lot of individuals in their 40s, 50s, 60s that were repositioning in their life. So a lot of the conversations in our classrooms were about Tim is, you know, senior vice president of a company that doesn't exist anymore. Lisa ran her own business for 30 years and no longer can do mortgage lending. And then now you know, you have to restart and retool. So that was very valuable, I would say. You know, what we do now, it took 17 years to build. You know, Green Harvest kind of came together with my two partners in 
2018, we learned a lot. 18, 19, we did our first acquisition in 2020, and then kind of have grown from there. That's awesome. What took you, I wouldn't say like took you so long, but what was that journey like from the beginning of founding it until you actually found the first deal to close it? You know, my business partner, Mike Smith, would say, we learned a lot, is a phrase he uses a lot. And he would say, you know, it was our learning stage. And I would say, we got sure. butts kicked. <laughs> there's just so many things we didn't know. When you're chasing an asset, there's so many variables between the lending you know, side to the capital raise side to the asset acquisition side and everything else with the third parties that goes along in it. And you know, when you're bidding against other larger institutions, when you're bidding against more sophisticated operators, you're not really comprehending you know, what are the levers that are going to be needed to be pulled in order for the deal to come to fruition. So we learned a lot for the first two years Yeah, and took us some time, but we got there. Well, yeah. I mean, they're seminars, really what they are. They're having these experiences. I'm sure you put a lot of deals, bids out there and LOIs and dealing with banks and lenders. It's a whole process. It is. It's something that, but you have to do it. You have to go through those reps in order to get the deal, in order to find a deal. And when you did find that first deal, and then obviously that was the beginning of 2020. Everyone knows what happened a couple of months later, but you were still throughout that process in buying mode, right? And you guys have picked up quite a few assets over the past you know, two and a half years. How has that gone for you? Meaning at the beginning when COVID you know, hit and every kind of thing shut down, what was it that kept you guys going and pushing forward? You know, One thing that's been a pivotal part of our thesis has been to focus on microeconomic conditions and only do business in areas that we understand all the verticals. So as we did our first acquisition, you know, we're part of several organizations. One of the organizations that you know, we sit on the board of is the Northern Ohio Apartment Association. And Northern Ohio Apartment Association has 250,000 units from Lake Erie down to Columbus. And it was instrumental when the world was shifting to have the information that was coming through the Apartment Association to understand the guidance that was being provided at a macro level from other markets, from the federal government, from the state government and react accordingly. Secondarily, you know, we understood that labor shortages were going to be widespread. You know, it forced us to start our own construction services business because we knew we couldn't find a GC third party that could do it. We were lucky enough to have a great mentor in Chuck Schulman, who runs an organization called Carlisle Management in our market. That was our backbone third party manager who was able to help us understand, okay, you know, we're going to retain these employees. Here are the other vendors you can lean on. And again, this is real time, right? You have to be present yeah. every day. You have to show up every day. And that's how we built it. We kind of reacted every day. We took it one day at a time. We showed up every day and we worked diligently to form a solution as we face problems. Yeah. That sounds like it's been growing consistently and having the assets you know, not just the actual properties, but the community around you as you know that sounding board and knowing, like you said, only building in the verticals that you understand and are active in helps you to grow and to grow consistently. What are the, some of the challenges that have come along the way? I mean, obviously you mentioned the construction shortages, then starting your own company, you know, the management and bringing that in-house, these kind of things. What are some of the things that really just kind of totally shocked you, if any. Everyone has deals that kind of go south. I mean, you know, we were involved in our second project in April, May, right, of 2020. And, you know, I had always worked with small community banks, 
personal relationships, you know, with the lenders, right? You know, and we've kind of grown that way. And now we were in a world of non-recourse, CMBS market, you know, permanent debt market, bridge lending with life companies. And I remember we had 14 lenders on this one project that we were working on. And the same day, all the lenders evaporated. And we have a deposit down. We're in the middle of negotiations. We're 60 days away from closing and not a single lender. The entire CMBS market closed at the time. And so I had another project that was in refinance mode that was being priced with Freddie Fannie. And we were seven days away from closing. And the lender sent this very long email to me explaining why you know Freddie Fannie had extended all of their reserve requirements and this deal will not happen. And so those were things that were unprecedented. You know, you can't plan for those. And the way we adapted, the way we adjusted was we took a step back. We said, okay, if the permanent market isn't lending, who is? We went back to our community bank relationships and said, hey, we're in the middle of this deal. Here's all of our due diligence. Here's the project. Here's how, you know, we're going to do a value add strategy on it. What do you think? And those relationships came to fruition. First Commonwealth Bank was the lender, Kevin Kulp, who's a friend of mine there. And a great banker in our market was able to offer us a five-year swap rate. And we leased it. And back then, treasuries were 0.63, if you can imagine. And look, it took till October of 2020 to close the deal. You know, Mm -hmm. and the seller was patient with us also. And they understood that, hey, you know, these are circumstances that are not normal. And so we took it to fruition and closed in October. That's pretty cool. It takes a lot of patience (laughs) sometimes to do that. But that's a great story of just looking at different options. And like going back to what you said, you know, when you were 19, just asking questions, things you don't know, find people and don't be afraid to ask for help. You know, that lender or the banker, they're going to have options that you would have never imagined. And, you know, that's their job. And so everyone's trying to get on the same boat, hopefully. But nowadays you're seeing similar things happening. I'm seeing now with, especially with the rates being changed. And, you know, I've had several people come to me the past couple of weeks where they had deals under contract and, you know, the lenders pulled out. Lenders, you know, changed the rates and just the lenders retraded. And that's like, well, what do you do now? Go back to the seller, see what can we do. Some people take it, some people don't. Have you had any specific situations like that currently where you have deals under contract? Absolutely. I don't know if I can talk about those just yet, but a hundred percent, right? I mean, interest rates have moved anywhere from two to three hundred basis points in a very short amount of time. I mean, that's you know, everybody that's a professional in the business knew it was coming. Nobody should have been like, oh, interest rates are 6%. How dare they? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, a 3% interest rate is not normal in a 8% right. inflation environment. So we all were prepared for the rise in interest rates. I think what was a little bit shocking to me was the pace of it. It moved extremely quickly in a very short amount of time. So again, it's about options, you know, understanding who the lenders are. There's always a pendulum shift, right? As interest rates move, the bridge lenders, you know, the permanent lenders, those rates are going to be much higher. The balance sheet lenders, the deposit funded banks, the community banks, you know, the credit unions, they now have leverage to lend at a more favorable rate. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you can look at, I think on one of the projects, we're looking at a three to four year swap right now. And, you know, it's coming in the mid fives. That's a great rate still, right? Yeah. So, you know, we're looking at community banks again, where we weren't before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Recourse is a big part of everything that we do. We like to be limited or no recourse on our debt. So, you know, those are the conversations we're having. With community banks, you'll have to hold a little bit of recourse, but at the same time, 
if you're having a 150 to 220 basis point spread lower, mm-hmm. it's just a much better deal for you and your investors. Absolutely. It makes all the difference. <laughs> you have to deal with what you're given. I mean, the, the current, you can't transact in any other market, right? You're here, you're now. We have to, you know, if the plan, the business plan, and if your model and your goals are aligned, it really shouldn't matter what the rates are and things like that. You make a deal work. If it works, it works. We always say, you know, there are, you know, there are three buckets in every deal, right? There's mm-hmm. a seller bucket with the sales price. There's a lender bucket because they have a spread that the lender's making, right? Anywhere from two to three percent over whatever treasury, sofer, you know, prime, whatever they're calculating. And then there is the investor bucket. We always have an open conversation with our lenders and our brokers and our sellers, and we'll say, look, this is our reality. You know, if we have to divide it by, you know, thirds, let's do it. We'll take a little bit of a hit. You reduce the purchase price a little bit. Nobody wants to hear that, right? And then we tell the lender, hey, you have to compress your spread a little bit. But, you know, this is good business, right? I mean, again, it's the idea of the long-term relationship. It's the idea of Mm -hmm. a long-term investment that matters. Now, you're focused solely at Gene Harvest Capital. You guys are focused on, like you said, the workforce housing in Northeast Ohio. Are you finding any other asset classes that are, you know, coming up? I mean, you don't have to, if there's just something in the works, you don't have to, you know, talk about it, but other things that you guys are interested in. Obviously you had that hotel when you were younger. What other experiences or things are you kind of looking into if you are? That's a great question, right? As we do look at our market and then we look at about a thesis of about a 1200 unit portfolio in the workforce housing space, the next vertical that Green Harvest is working on at present is a hotel vertical because- Mm -hmm. You know, we believe post-pandemic, the franchises are really asking the operators to invest back into the business. Mm -hmm. Believe connectivity is going to drive the next stage of the hotel business where, you know, you'll be able to pull into a parking lot. Your application will tell you what room you're in. Your phone will unlock the door when you get up there. And that will drive a lot of efficiency on the back end. In our market, there are not that many organized, sophisticated asset managers and operators that are you know, looking at a programmatic approach to the business. So that is something we're working on. Sounds interesting in terms of operating them as simply hotels or converting yeah. them to multifamily. Oh, you're just keeping that. Going after choice flags and operating them as hotels. That's the business plan. You know, I looked very much into buying assets, converting them to multifamily that were hotels or office buildings. And and what we came up against in our market, especially is, you know, there's a ceiling, you know, Ohio is a secondary market, right? We're not a coastal Mm -hmm. market. We're not smile signs. Our median household income in the state is $60,000 per household. We always model 30% of that as, you know, a livable amount to spend on housing. That's $1,500 a month for the average Ohioan. So unless you want to target the top 5%, which we don't want to do, you know, mm-hmm. we're building a business that we hope is recession uh, hedge. And so all of our assets are between $900 and $1,200 a month in rents, right? I mean, it's kind of our lane staying below that number. Mm-hmm. We see a 4% appreciation in wages. The service sector has seen nationally almost, I believe, almost 11% appreciation in wages. Other jobs have seen 5.5%. And so in the state of Ohio, we believe by 2025, we'll be closer to 70,000 in median household incomes than 60. That gives us promise of, you know, appreciating rents. Also, Mm -hmm. 
as we look at conversions because of the cost of acquisition plus the labor plus the construction costs you know there's a ceiling of what you can charge and therefore you know the math is tight on a conversion also right. a lot of cities aren't favorable to taking a property and setting a precedent of a conversion because then it allows a lot of other precedents to occur which might not meet the best interests of that city so we gotcha. saw a lot of resistance with that. So we just feel that, you know, a lot of extended state properties, a lot of Marriott Hilton flags are underoperated. Mm-hmm. A lot of love, you know, from a CapEx standpoint. And if we can do sure. that in a programmatic way and operate them and manage them properly, we can see scale. Sure. Absolutely. It's a business that it has been effective and plenty of people that are doing it. And there are great organizations out there as well that you can be a part of just like you're a part of these community organizations with the multifamily, the apartment side. There are similar things going on in the hotel space. I know quite a few. So if that's something I can help you with or connect you with some people there, yeah, happy to help. In fact, we had a great, one of the actual first episodes on Weiss Advice back about two years ago, which was right, you know, towards the beginning of the pandemic. So they were bleeding, but was J.R. Patel, you know, CEO of Helix Hospitality. And that's they're doing amazing things. And it's incredible to see the perseverance of people that go through a pandemic and you know their whole business totally shut down, essentially, and then coming through that. On the other side, you know, just connected with them recently again, and it's just incredible to see the perseverance yeah. that people go through. Absolutely. And you know, it's a conviction, right? It's like, I always talk about purpose and intention when you're building something, because those are the important things, because you will be faced with challenges that you cannot fathom, right? But if your purpose and intention are aligned, mm-hmm. you know, with your partners, with the community that you do business in, with your investors, then you will succeed. You will find a way. So what are some of those principles, if you mind sharing us, that you know your company is built on? Absolutely. You know, we're community focused. We do business where we live. So when we acquire an asset, we do a value add strategy. We genuinely want to give people a better place to live. And so, you know, all of our CapEx is is geared towards creating a more safer, more modern, more connected community, right? Second, you know, we're building a business where we create jobs. We have about 28 employees now in our market. We hope to grow that to close to 50 here by the end of the year. And again, they're average Ohioans, people we know, right? People that we work with that are local. We just had our first company get together and it was tremendous to see everybody kind of come together in one area and grab some pizza. And, you know, again, we're very proud of that, right? Creating jobs in our community. And finally, delivering a fair return to our investors. We always talk about an equitable partnership where it's, you know, their capital at work, our efforts and our employees, you know, that work with us, our coworkers, ability to improve their lives and their bottom line, right? So, you know, we're working very effectively trying to understand property management systems. How do we streamline a lot of our processes like rent collection? We By the end of this year, we hope 100% of our rent collection will be digital, even you know across all of our assets. What that does is it allows us to have fewer people in administration, allowing us to pay our maintenance people more, our property managers more, our regionals more. That's awesome. It really shows that you have, you know, you're coming from that place where you are trying to build up the community and it shows it really does which is amazing because a lot of people have especially real estate investors oftentimes get this you know 
different view on them. You know, people look at them as slumlords or just trying to take advantage. And especially tenants can look at, you know, property owners and you're just trying to take advantage of us and raising the rent, et cetera, yada, yada. But in the truth, when you're showing that you're, no, you're here actually to help. We want to make a better place to live. We want to make it more community friendly, create activities, create things that will help, you know, bring people together. It's a totally different feeling. I'm sure the tenants themselves approach you very differently than they would you know, say uh, someone else who's doing a different strategy. We hope so. You know, we hope they feel it and, you know, we'll continue to do it. And, you know, again, this is home, right? Right. Awesome. Well, I'd love to transition out of what we call the final four. This is four questions I ask all the guests. First question to you is what is the worst job that you ever had? It was about 15 years old and it was trimming trees and carrying shingles to the top of a roof. I felt back pain for the first time. And I remember that I used to play football and, you know, you'd have bruises after practice or after a game and you'd feel, you know, a little bit in pain, but I never felt pain by carrying shingles up a ladder. That was the worst job I've had. (laughs) That's yeah. It sounds like a pretty challenging thing to do. Second question. What's a book you've read that's given you a paradigm shift? Rich dad, poor dad. Definitely, you know, rings true. Yeah. You're definitely not the first person that said that on this show. So it's one that has changed many people's lives. Just change the way you think and, and view everything. Exactly. Third question. What's a skill or talent that you would like to learn? Yeah. Doing better presentations. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's one of my weak points that I hope to improve on. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's something we all need to get better at in public yeah. speaking or giving presentations, presentations is something that always needs work. Fourth and final question, what does success mean to you? The freedom to do whatever it is that I desire, right? I don't correlate success with money, but more allocation of time. I have two girls, a seven-year-old and a two-year-old, spending time with them, spending time with my wife. And then more I have the opportunity to do that, more successful I feel. Very powerful. Yeah. When you have kids, that's hopefully for most people, that's the biggest thing that should make a difference in our life and putting a financial, you know, a number or anything like that on definition of success just doesn't make sense because there's plenty of people out there who are very wealthy and the eyes of some people would be considered successful, but are miserable. And that's not something that I hope anyone strives for. So having the right values, the right goals in life help us to get there. So I appreciate you taking the time today. Where can our listeners find you or reach out to you? Yeah. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn, happy to connect and share any advice that I can be helpful with or just connect and talk real estate. Happy to do that. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, no, thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure speaking to you and look forward to hearing more great things from Green Harvest Capital and yourself and wish you much continued success. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you guys again for joining. Once again, remember the best advice comes only when you ask. Real quick, I have one question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I wanna ask you a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message to the whole world is that if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast. What that does is it basically tells the platforms that this podcast is out on is that you like my stuff and I'm doing something right. So take a few seconds out of your day, hit that subscribe button, leave a rating or review. I would be extremely grateful. Also, I want to hear from you guys. So I want to hear some feedback. If you have any questions for future episodes, please find me on LinkedIn. Send me a DM, a connection request, Yona Weiss, and I'd love to hear from you.